Welcome to the fourth episode of Acamedia's podcast series, Talking Television in a Pandemic. I'm Michelle Cho, Assistant Professor of East Asian Popular Cultures at the University of Toronto. I'm honored to moderate today's conversation at the invitation of Hunter Hargraves, Lynn Joyrich, and Brandy Monk-Payton, the amazing organizers of this five-part series. We're very thankful to be part of the Acamedia podcast, sponsored by SCMS and the Journal for Cinema and Media Studies. Some episodes of this series were recorded before the murder of George Floyd on May 25, 2020, when a white police officer pressed his knee to Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds while Floyd struggled for his life, and before the protests that broke out around the country and the world condemning that despicable murder, and more broadly, police brutality and systemic racial injustice. Racism, too, is a pandemic, one that intersects with the COVID-19 pandemic, with racialized populations disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus because of centuries of health, employment, and social disparities. The horrific inequalities in the economic and criminal justice systems, and of course in the media, highlight how racism itself poses an ongoing public health crisis. In the wake of Floyd's murder, along with the murders of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and so many others, we have thus broadened the podcast conversations to include discussion of television's relation to racism, injustice, oppressive policing, and the protests against these, together with discussion of television's relation to COVID-19. As we believe that contemplating these pandemics together is critical to understanding the state of our world and the media today. So this is our fourth episode and today's topic is technology a prompt that allows us to consider the materiality of media infrastructures, platforms and interfaces, imaging technologies, industry practices, and new techniques of media engagement that we're seeing emerge in these times. To talk about these complex issues, um, we're lucky to have with us today AJ Christian, media producer, social practice artist, and associate professor of communication at Northwestern University. Hi, thanks for having me. Miles McNutt, TV critic and recapper at the AV Club in Slate, and assistant professor of communication and theater arts at Old Dominion University. Great to be here. Linda Morgan, assistant professor in the Department of Communication and Media Studies at Fordham University. Hi, thanks again for having me. And Lisa Parks, professor of comparative media studies and science, technology, and society, and director of the Global Media Technologies and Cultures Lab at MIT. Great to be with you all today. Welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for being here. So the place I'd like to start is by throwing out a general question, which is, how have you all been keeping up with what's going on these days? Um, which platforms are you using? What images and reports are you tuning into? Do you notice any changes to the ways you're according legitimacy to some accounts over others? And are you thinking about yourself as a broadcasting or a transmission node? Um, I say this just because I've been really glued to Twitter um, these days uh, because I feel like the commentary there kind of captures a liveness that I don't feel on network or cable news. And that kind of made me realize that, you know, in some ways I now attribute that immediacy more to who's talking as opposed to when or like the temporality of, of what I'm seeing. That makes me realize that for me, liveness sort of means more like voices on the ground as opposed to a kind of simultaneous broadcast. So your thoughts or reflections on how you're keeping up with things. 
I mean, I can start on that front because I also am on Twitter all the time. Um, and I think from my experience of that, when it comes to sort of like Twitter experience, it's like I don't follow that many actual reporters on Twitter. I follow a lot of sort of TV journalists and things of this nature. But I have a lot of people in my feed who are doing a lot of signal boosting, who are doing a lot of work to sort of share what's going on. And so it has been sort of an interesting experience of the fact that I feel like to some degree, rather than curating a specific group of people to give me sort of live boots on the ground perspective, I'm sort of seeing what is filtering through the people that I trust, the people that I'm connected with. And I feel like I felt really comfortable with what I was seeing and what perspective I was getting and felt like I was really learning and observing whether we're talking about the pandemic or the current protests. But at the same time, I then talked to, say, my parents or talked to other people involved in these circumstances who are not connected to that. And I'm seeing the really significant disparity that is happening in those circumstances. We talk about sort of the bubble effect of how this plays out with different platforms. And I do feel like to some degree, I'm feeling the exaggerated version of that, that whether it's things like that sort of pandemic video that went around on Facebook that we all had to like get our relatives and things to kind of like get in line with and all this, that we're seeing just this very different uh, separation of that thing where I feel like to some degree my Twitter feed is more valuable to me than it's ever been, but I also feel it may be more or I guess in many ways less representative of what else is happening out there than it ever has been before. And I think bridging that disparity has been something that I've been thinking a lot about as I think about myself as a node, as you suggest. I don't really like Twitter. Um, I think it's like too much and I get completely overwhelmed. So I've pretty much stuck to Facebook and Instagram and in Chicago, there's a lot that happens on the ground that the media, the mainstream media doesn't cover. And so having those connections to local activists and artists and community organizers in Chicago through Facebook and Instagram has been super useful for me to get locally specific information out there. So I have been using my Instagram stories to like share, how do you contact your alderman? What do you say? Um, what is the police budget in Chicago? How can we reformulate that and sort of defund it? Um, and for Facebook, the live capabilities, I think, have been useful for thinking about like what actions are happening where, what does that scene look like? Do I really want to show up there or not? So that's been my post uprising, Black Lives Matter uprising media consumption. Before that, I was comfortably on Twitch and my usual Facebook, Instagram, just having pleasure in entertainment and online video. Um, but that has shifted with more disseminating and consuming information that's very locally specific. I wanted to echo what um, AJ said. This is Linda. And added to that, I have to bring up the context that I'm in. I've been on sabbatical this year, um, this past academic year, and I relocated to Indianapolis. I'm currently at my parents' house. So it's been a lot of also witnessing their different engagements firsthand with news media. My father is very much a watch the local news and watches the like NBC Nightly News every night. Fareed Zakaria in 60 Minutes on the weekend, that is like standard. But I would say that Facebook Live has been really important to me. It's nice to, it makes me feel connected. Um, and then in terms of Instagram has also been really helpful. Uh, partly because I've been, you know, following my friends in New York who've been out protesting. And so part of it is about, you know, I trust their perspective on things, but also it's just like an immediate feeling of, I hope you don't get arrested tonight and I'm your contact. Um, so there's kind of this aspect of care and concern that's there too. 
Um, this is Lisa, and I am probably a little bit older than many of the other people on the panel. And while I read a lot of online news, I have been glued to cable TV for several months now. Um, and I generally watch a lot of cable TV news. I have noticed a shift in my own viewing behavior from being irate and yelling back and screaming at TV news, particularly during the task force uh, presentations that we started to see, what, in March and April, to more recently sitting there and listening. And I think that one of the silver linings of the most recent events that have been tragic and heart-wrenching and unfortunate is that we've seen on cable TV news uh, a just surge in Black leadership, Black intellectual voices, Black anchors and reporters coming forth. And I also just want to mention a few of these names because I think it's a really powerful moment. Um, Michael Eric Dyson, Brittany Packnett Cunningham, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Brian Stevenson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Cornel West, Royce White, Bernice King, George Floyd's family members, Karen Atia, um, Andrea Jenkins, Lori Lightfoot, Keisha Lance Bottoms, Muriel Bowser, Stacey Abrams, Kamala Harris. The list goes on even within outlets like CNN and MSNBC. A lot of the African-American anchors and reporters that are often used in slots that aren't, you know, the high ratings or prime time are also really being pronounced in terms of their contributions and the insights that they're sharing. So I have just, I, I felt like SCMS should basically make a list of all of these people that have appeared in the, the cable newscape and implore the executives of these cable TV news outlets to regularly provide space on air for these voices, not just during times of crisis. Viewers learn much more on cable TV when we hear from all of these people. And I think it's time that we all in the U.S. know all of these names as well. Um, so I, I just feel like I've been really listening a lot the last um, few weeks. And it was a telling moment when I even like agreed with things that Colin Powell said on CNN on um, su Sunday <laughs> when he was making a big plug for public education and making really scathing critiques of the Trump administration. I mean, I want to kind of pick up on something, Lisa, that you mentioned, which is a sort of generational change that we might be seeing happen in the sense that, granted, that generational divide is often overstated at times. It's really reinforced more by the kind of discourse of that generational divide. But at the same time, you see a lot, you see a real change, I think, in the ways that people get information and what they attribute a kind of legitimacy to, depending on what their kind of norms of media consumption are. So, you know, I don't know a lot of people who are in their 20s who don't spend most of their TV time watching YouTube. So I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on whether or not you see these changes having an impact more broadly Amar, you've talked about the difference between legacy media and indie media. And so we seem to be seeing a similar kind of divide coming up in terms of, you know, news. So where do you see things going from here? And just how 
different demographics seem to be consuming information and entertainment in such completely different ways. Yeah, it seems like people's brand loyalty are shifting from corporate brands to individuals that they trust and who align with their politics. We've, of course, seen this happening for many years now, um, but I do think the pandemic and then the subsequent uprisings have accelerated that in part because corporate media doesn't really get at the core issues that's happening with the Black Lives Matter protests, right? People are talking about defunding and abolishing police um, for very specific reasons, and the news seems to be focusing more on the kind of on-the-ground tussle between the police rather than the kind of broader political aims. And yet there are lots of social media influencers who, um, whether they're journalists or activists or just thought leaders who are actually posting much more in-depth information through social media platforms, in the entertainment space outside of news, I think young people are flocking to Twitch and TikTok and these kinds of lo-fi platforms where maybe, hopefully, they are decentering the kinds of need for high production value that you get through corporate media and actually consuming things that are more immediate, authentic, and sensually real as opposed to seeming real through kind of high technical standards. And if I could just add to that specifically, one of the things I was thinking about as we're talking about this is that to some degree, what happened during the pandemic destabilized our sense of legitimacy attached to production values, because already traditional media was having to shift towards cell phone production and lo-fi lighting and the late night talk shows, news, everybody having to go to these sort of formats that we did see more of this lo-fi production that we sort of had to accept was no longer a signal of a lack of legitimacy, but rather just an acknowledgement of circumstance. So now we're in a situation situation where those ideas were already collapsing, that we're now watching this pandemic footage and maybe a little bit more open and receptive to seeing this type of footage from different formats, where if I'm on my feed and I'm seeing a TikTok remix, that all of a sudden it's like, that's not like, well, where did this TikTok remix come from? Why isn't this real news? Why isn't this got a CNN sort of, you know, sticker on it? versus by comparison to that, whereas I feel like we've been seeing that kind of content spreading a little bit more widely, a little bit more differently over the past three months, such that I feel like maybe we are maybe that much more receptive to it, thus furthering that divide or lack of divide that we're seeing. You know, I, I do think there are all kinds of emergent formations in terms of the reporting on all these events, but I also notice weird cyclical patterns. Like one of the most bizarre moments for me was, um, it was on, I think, May 30th, when on the one hand, we had the demonstrations had started in full force, and there was a lot of coverage across the cable networks. And the coverage was interrupted by the SpaceX Falcon 9 um, and Dragon launch to send astronauts up to the International Space Station. And this was such a parallel moment to the kinds of things that we saw during the 1960s uh, when you had, you know, the civil rights protests in full force and on the, the radar of most American citizens and on the front pages and on TV coverage and yet oscillating with these shots of astronauts going to the moon. And a really incisive and important um, commentary came, of course, from Gil Scott Heron in his um, 1970 poem, uh, Whitey on the Moon. Like it just, it played so perfectly alongside what we were then seeing in 2020. And I just think it's important to look at 
some of the, the patterns and the continuities over time, as well as the divergences. And one of the divergences that I see is not just the, the live streaming with social media, but also the aerial coverage via drones. And there's all kinds of drone coverage. Usually when we see it, there's no attribution in terms of the provenance of the coverage. So we don't know if it's police footage or activist drone material. And I think it's really important for us to kind of be monitoring whose views those are, because sometimes they're showing particular things and not other things. And um, just to be monitoring with critical acumen, those kinds of emergent perspectives um, with the same kind of criticality we've applied to TV texts in the past, too. Yeah, I um, just subscribed to the Woke stream on Twitch, which is just coverage from uh, protests around the world. And some of them are drone footage, and some of the drone footage is like ABC7 or whatever, but then some of it has no attribution whatsoever. So it's like if some of these are using police drones on Woke Twitch, it's just kind of like these interesting clashes of values. Yeah, um, I was thinking about your work, Lisa, when I was watching some of the aerial footage of like protesters being like they were trapped on um, the Manhattan Bridge. And it was one of those very unnerving moments because I had a friend who was on the bridge and like I was uh, seeing Instagram live and people were commenting. They're like, oh, I'm watching CNN. I'm seeing this aerial shot of I think where you are. Like, I think you might be coming up on a parked bus. And we were trying to figure out, you know, like where the police were. But then it felt just very odd to be using kind of the same gaze and like scopic tools to sort of give some kind of like, oh, I'm going to help you. But then it's this sort of illusion of mastery. And that was scary in a different way, that kind of contradiction. I mean, luckily, they were at least able to get by and nobody was hurt and arrested at that moment. But it just felt like a very weird coming together. Yeah, I think even sometimes those humanitarian overviews can have another kind of spin. And it's really important that media scholars and people who are talking about these kinds of images try to contextualize them and, you know, also try to think of different things that they're representing. They're not just representing unruly crowds, right? They're, they're showing the people in an assem public assembly and they're showing a demonstration in mass and the power and the force of the people banded together in public space, in privatized spaces. And those overhead views are uniquely able to, to show the power of the people when they get together in, in a co-presence. Yeah, the way that the spectacle of mass and scale seems to be working right now is really interesting. And, you know, as you were just talking about, in a way, the technologies that we owe for the capacity to create those images are the same technologies that are both surveilling people, putting them in more danger, and monetizing the spectacle as well. So I guess I wanted to maybe ask you all to uh, comment on other forms of visibility that we might be encountering at the moment in ways that are able to kind of register participation or register um, the people. And I bring this up because as someone who's working on K-pop, 
Um, one of the big stories in the last week or so has been the appearance of K-pop fandoms on Twitter um, as a kind of agent of anti-racist activism. And um, because the K-pop fandom works primarily to amplify, to make visible the artists and celebrities that uh, K-pop fans support, um, they've become really savvy at manipulating platforms in order to make their preferences visible, to kind of trend certain hashtags, to take over the kind of top trending topics. And so that kind of visibility, though, it still circumscribes so much by the platform. What does visibility mean in that space? It's really you know, not clear how to read those gestures, except as a way to, yeah, like what is popularity in that context? Um, so have you all been seeing other forms of visibility that are, are able to be registered in these ways technologically? And how do you make sense of them? Well, I mean, I think what's interesting to what you're pointing to is that, like, in some cases, this visibility is clearly intended, like, we're trying to send a message, we're trying to amplify something, we're trying to sort of spread something further, be a part of a movement, connect to a hashtag, etc. But in other cases, like, sort of, AJ sort of references, but, like, seeing the way celebrities are using social media to amplify these messages and to move through all of this, they're not really, in many cases, like, if they're doing Instagram stories, those aren't really intended to go viral, right? Those aren't intended to reach an audience outside of their fan base. They're trying to take their fan base and work with them. And one of the interesting cases that I saw of this was weirdly enough Noah Centineo who is the star of Netflix's To All the Boys franchise this sort of like teen idol figure coming out of the Disney Channel mold originally he has historically not done anything dramatically political just a few sort of like quasi woke statements nothing I would call sort of meaningful but what he started doing was he started holding live streams where he would basically interact through Instagram live with his followers and then after that, he would air like this like crooked live stream of his computer screen of the mayor of LA's sort of daily briefing as to what was going on in quarantine and what information people needed regarding the pandemic. And it was this really interesting form of public action that really wasn't being widely broadcast, but just to his group of people, whatever, however millions that there are, of just like most of whom are probably not in LA, who might not be directly connected to this. It's like, what can I do to sort of spread that message? And it was interesting at the very same time, his co-star, Lana Condor, was starting a YouTube channel and posting collab videos with her boyfriend and things that had nothing to do with the pandemic and that were very much not in that vein. And it's like, since the Black Lives Matter protest have started both have shifted to a more traditional kind of posting supportive messages resources things of that nature that we would expect from what is ultimately a very managed social media environment where you have managers sort of controlling uh, those images but i just thought it was interesting to see a celebrity take that message and say i'm just going to sort of immerse myself in this and make it this personal connection and bridge that to this public issue i think that's an interesting use that does not about spreadability that's not about amplifying but rather about connecting those messages together that was i still don't really entirely know what to make of that choice but i think it says a lot about where they're at at this moment well I, i've been deepening my appreciation for some of my celebrity follows um i don't follow a lot of celebrities but like Kendrick Sampson has been very much on the ground in Los Angeles uh, filming from actions and actually was shot by police with rubber bullets and through his celebrity was actually able to show how violent the police really were. And India Moore from Pose was here in Chicago for some reason um, when the uprising broke out and actually spoke 
at a press conference organized by someone who works with me at OTV to help free some activists who were jailed for no reason. So I have seen a bunch of celebrities actually do real activism, um, which has been very exciting and deepens my respect for them for sure. Align maybe with the more the Noah Centineo? Centineo, but it's okay. Um, Centineo, I'm sorry, Noah. Along those lines, I just saw that Selena Gomez is having like Twitter takeovers, like Kimberly Crenshaw, I think, for a day was taking over her Twitter. And I was surprised by that. And also, I'm still trying to think through what people have thought about in terms of celebrity and wokeness. But I think that there is something about giving the space or seeding space that feels important. And I think along the lines, uh, Michelle, with what you're talking about with BTS and flooding the Dallas Police Department with the videos, on the one hand, it felt about fandom, but then also about this idea of digital space and clogging the system, very much like culture jamming and that tradition. And I think that's interesting too. There's something there about these kind of uh, feminized teeny bopper culture that is usually so um, reviled and discarded and thought of as waste. And then that being used to bring it all down or at least momentarily. And just to speak to the issue of seating space for a second, that's what all of the like white male late night hosts did, right? The first night they came back after the protests, like Conan O'Brien, the whitest person in late night, just by definition, he's a very white man, um, very much sort of made a statement where he's like, I'm just going to like let Van Jones come in and talk about this. And I'm just going to listen and I'm just going to go through that. And that's again, like to some degree that was made easier by the shift in format of that show due to the pandemic, right? In the sense that they're doing basically Zoom calls and it's basically just a one-on-one, like I'm in interviewing you, you can give up that space a little easier than if you're on a stage with a desk where you're splitting focus, you gain that ability to accomplish that. I think that move of seating space was a very clear celebrity initiative, but whether it's Twitter takeovers or Instagram takeovers, this is also part of a larger, like you say, a star management system, right? Where it's like anything that Justin Bieber and Ariana Grande are doing is ultimately Scooter Braun sort of running this stable, grooming himself for a future Senate run, right? Like we need to acknowledge that sort of the politics of this are not simply designed to the artists themselves, but rather the management systems that are designed to position them for what is a new world order. And I'm glad for the changes that come from that, but it's like, I don't want to be too cynical, but there's still sort of a calculated nature to a lot of those choices that we need to acknowledge. I don't really have much to add to that thread, which I, I learn a lot from you guys because I really have been glued to TV much more than I have been looking at platform takeovers or infiltrations. Um, I mean, I have other things to say about other issues, but probably not that particular one. Well, Lisa, if you if you want to take some space here to kind of bring up some of those other issues, please feel free. Well, maybe it, it builds on a little bit of the past discussion, especially with regard to concerns about, you know, using social media. And I, in some ways, it's something I've been thinking about, but I'd be curious to hear the other, all of the rest of you, too, um, about just the issue of surveillance. And, you know, I think of the work of Joy Uolamwini, and she runs the Algorithmic Justice League, and she's been um, really trying to pressure the federal government to, and local and state governments to deal with facial recognition technology. And she and some of her colleagues just published a piece, I believe it was on Medium, about uh, the way that law enforcement officers are um, commandeering a lot of material from social media, from police cameras, smartphones, uh, drone footage, and using just basically 
aggregating all of it and then running it through facial recognition systems. And she's trying to track this and to make people more aware of the fact that this is happening. So anyone that's live streaming, you know, could have their footage intercepted. All phone calls out in demonstrations can be intercepted using what's known as MC catcher technology. Um, sometimes they're known as stingrays. And so there's this weird phenomenon happening where we're demonstrating and documenting and witnessing the demonstrations via social media and our smartphones. And at the same time, all of that material can just be sort of swept up and aggregated and um, analyzed pretty efficiently these days. Anybody thinking about those surveillance issues or if you've been out on the streets yourselves, is it a concern when you have material and knowing it's going to be sucked up and possibly used in ways that you can't anticipate? I mean, that's the thing. All the data and metadata that our smartphones collect, we cannot anticipate how that data might be used in the future. I mean, I think in many ways that picks up with the notion like we were just in this moment of talking about contact tracing, right? And the challenges of that. And you have some countries really sort of like escalating this conversation and picking it up. But then it's like the second you go to Minneapolis, it's like, oh, we're contact tracing all these people we arrested to channel the back. And it's like you were you couldn't contract contact trace all those people who had the virus, but you can suddenly do this now? Like, where are those resources being spent? I think it's like we were in a moment to start thinking about that and then started to realize how that could be weaponized or otherwise sort of dealt with. And so I do think that it's been front of mind, but I also have not been leaving my house because as a non-US citizen, I, I don't really think that I should be uh, in the presence of those circumstances uh, for the various reasons and kind of cases. And so I've kind of been watching from afar. Yeah, I have thought about it quite a bit. I went to one demonstration here and I definitely had my phone on airplane mode and just did not broadcast. I took video, but then posted it later from a separate location. Um, and as I mentioned, there was someone who works with me with OTV who's connected to activists and community organizers who for decades, you know, the Chicago police has um, tracked them in various ways. For what reason, who knows? But we definitely know that some of these activists are on the police radar and have been arrested over the past couple of weeks for no reason and then charged on trumped up charges. So, you know, we were in a staff meeting that week and our one of our team members was outside of the city of Chicago, would only communicate with us via signal, like wouldn't disclose her location. And I was really fired up because a lot of things had happened to her and she had very specific stories about things that were potentially very charged and could kind of like the Kendrick Sampson case, like shift people's position on the police. And I wanted to jump on our live stream and start talking to community and broadcasting. And my executive director was like, hold up. Like, this is not just about getting information out. Now it's also about your safety, the team safety, everybody's safety, right? And I think it does affect the kinds of citizen journalists and activists who are trying to get out information outside of established legacy news institutions. How empowered do they feel to do that? And are they putting themselves at risk by sending out that information? And if legacy media isn't telling the full story, you're kind of caught in between trying to get out the real story, but also realizing that that could endanger you and your communities as well. I think there's more intention now, at least if people are going to be live streaming from protests to try to hide people's faces or, or just like filming their feet walking or something. But I mean, that doesn't get rid of the metadata problem or like geolocation or any of those factors. Um, I've seen apps that you can download to try to disguise people's faces when you post. 
it's almost like like a filter um, that would be added. But I do think the security concerns are definitely real. I think it's also even interesting just to think about the body politics of evading surveillance in public. Um, I know that some of the people that have been accused of being white supremacist infiltrators and agitators at some of the peaceful demonstrations have shown up in particular kinds of dress and walking around also in some cases with umbrellas to try to shield themselves from the aerial view um, so that their silhouettes couldn't be identified or zooms couldn't be used on their faces. Just as there are new capacities for surveillance, there will be new evasive tactics too. On that point, Lisa, it's it's also the case. It seems that some of the tactics and strategies that we're seeing at the protests are um, coming from other global sites of protest. And, you know, if we think about what's happening right now in North America, in the context of other movements and, and previous kind of instances of direct action politics, um, I think that also kind of helps us to really think about the possibilities, but also the pitfalls of the use of these technologies to organize and mobilize and be visible in tactical ways and also try to evade surveillance. So I want to kind of throw out a last round um, before we have to wrap up this really fascinating conversation. Um, And I thought maybe I would just kind of open it up to asking you all if you have had any kind of go-to modes of relief from some of these images or um, the kind of things that are happening these days, whether that's, you know, television or other forms of screen entertainment or um, things like that. I mean, it's funny because it does seem like the entertainment uses of screen media and the political or um, informational ones are increasingly bored these days. But if you have any kind of recommendations, thoughts on this, I would like to open it up. Well, I guess what I would say in this respect is the thing that's most interesting to me is sort of what hasn't necessarily served that function, because if I'm saying like what's keeping me occupied and keeping me busy, there's two things. One is us spending way too much time in like theme park Facebook groups, watching as the discourse around the pandemic plays out in just fundamentally destructive ways, just a giant minefield. Um, I'm in this research, but it's also like to some degree me trying to work through all that stuff. The other thing that's been interesting to me, though, is seeing um, which happened in the midst of the pandemic, which was the launch of Quibi. Uh, which I feel like if we're talking about technology and these sort of impacts, in a lot of ways, it embodied a lot of what theoretically could have could have taken advantage of moments, all about mobile media, all about connecting the people and going through all of this. And it was just really interesting to watch it just completely crash and burn based on this, AJ, I, I know you know very much, a fundamental misunderstanding of like short form media and how it works and how it plays out. But also really interesting when I think about it, it's like, They imagine this as being something for commuting. I get that people weren't commuting due to the pandemic and that created this crisis. But I think about how much a lot of these other platforms of TikTok and everything else have been able to move towards social justice and information and sort of dialogue and feel like they're so central and present in this moment because of their mobility. But then I see Quibi just sitting there with like some generic Anna Kendrick show and I'm just like, they just didn't understand or take advantage of a moment of what they were trying to accomplish. And I feel like that adaptability and the sort of challenge of that has been something really interesting to see the way the traditional media industries have struggled in many ways to figure out like what is their place within that, that the adaptability of 
late night talk shows and daytime talk shows to try to like find their place within this as sort of being very much sort of contemporaneous media. Whereas everything else is like just trying to see what they can do, how they can use technology to make content. Does anybody want that content? That you see Quibi as sort of like this perfect case of how that's not really playing out. Um, and so for me, that has been, admittedly, it's kind of work, but like to some degree, it's been the thing that's made me feel like, okay, here's some really interesting questions that are gonna carry out beyond this, right? They're gonna carry out beyond the pandemic about the way the media constructs and engages with this technology and content and its relationship between them. For me, that's sort of been something, I haven't really watched much on Quibi, it's not good, um, but I do think there's sort of that dynamic of that that's been at the very least uh, keeping me busy. My um viewing habits and comfort viewing habits have shifted radically since the beginning of the Black Lives Matter uprisings. You know, in the pre-uprising pandemic period, I was watching Twitch for the first time. You know, drag queens really flocked to Twitch in droves. And there were these like one, two, three, four hour long drag shows where people just filming their performances in their homes, which were really lovely um, and really gave me like a lot of hope for the future of queer media. Um, I was watching a lot of unwoke TV. I was watching um, a lot of shows about very wealthy white people like Belgravia, <laughs> um, which is like a Downton Abbey knockoff from Julian Fellows, and uh, The Great on Hulu about Catherine the Great and Catherine the Great and their satire of um, royalty. And those were just really fun to binge. And then since the uprisings happened, I have just been so disappointed in television. It's all felt so thin and meaningless. Thinking about like Netflix's marquee black show in this moment is Black as Fuck, which is about Kenya Barrett having a $100 million Netflix deal and being a really rich black guy. And it's just like, I couldn't watch that before the uprisings and I definitely can't watch it afterwards. Um, just like such a dud. And, you know, everything else has just felt so deeply unsatisfying and not up to the moment of where we're at, where people are really thinking about how do we transform whole systems and things that have been in place for over a century, you know? The only thing it seems like I can watch right now are like children's cartoons. Like I'm watching Avatar The Last Airbender right now and re-watching Sailor Moon. And there has been a couple queer performance reality shows. Like there's a voguing competition show on HBO Max, which doesn't really give justice to the ballroom scene, but it's like nice to have on. Um, and RuPaul's Drag Race is still going and I'm still watching that. And that is giving me a little bit of cheer. But otherwise I'm watching, yeah, like community-based live streams and actually taking pleasure in really locally specific information. I, well, okay, in terms of comfort, not a lot recently. Um, the, I think comfort for me right now with viewing, it's it's attached to sociality. So Brandy Monk, Peyton and I have been watching uh, the Anna Kendrick show, not on Quibi, um, the one that's on uh, HBO Max. Um, and that was like enjoyable to, you know, talk with somebody through that. I have another, a close friend from Chicago. We are, we watch episodes of Designing Women on Tuesday nights. So I'm looking forward to that this evening. So those kinds of things where it feels like more participatory and it feels like approximating the things I miss doing with my friends. I also found listening to music or just listening is becoming very therapeutic right now. And even just like, uh, I don't know, because I'm in my parents' house, we have these like dusty, like audio cassettes that they probably have had forever. And just even the sounds of those in the morning feel really comforting to me. So yeah, that, that would be the comfort aspect of it. 
I have more thoughts on the situation with Quibi and streaming outlets trying to be adaptable, but we can talk about that after. I don't know. I mean, you can show them now if you'd like. <laughs> no, I was just noticing um, in terms of like streaming outlets trying to be adaptable in this moment, um, like since the different Black Lives Matters uprisings, I think, you know, like Amazon has this like Black Lives Matter banner now when you go on to Prime and they have curated a list of titles such as like I Am Not Your Negro, the film, I think it's called Mercy. Just Mercy. Just Mercy uh, with Jamie Foxx and Michael B. Jordan. Um, and Netflix, I think 13th has been popping up. But then the top streamed film right now is The Help. Uh streaming platforms trying to be relevant and curating these lists in the same way that people have been curating lists of books about how to not be racist. And I think it's just interesting in the ways that streaming platforms have always tried to use some kind of very um, basic visions of diversity to show cosmopolitanism. And then how does that, how are they trying to, you know, affix anti-anti-Blackness onto that? Well, I mean, like, to me, it's also very much dependent on, like, what they have at their disposal, right? Part of the issue with Quibi is that they really don't have much to work with content-wise, right? That they're still content light, and so they don't have much to kind of play with. Netflix, Amazon, they have libraries of content they can kind of speak to, but it's like Hulu, it's depending, like, what movie rights do they have right now, right? What can they make work in short basis? What original content do, do they do or do not have that they can highlight and sort of point to? And this is a reminder, like, Netflix is in a lot of branding work, right? Specifically, like, Strong Black Lead and sort of their efforts to create a social media presence specifically around African-American audiences. And, like, we can talk about how consistent that's been in their actual programming strategies and how well those individual programs address that. But they've at least got, like, a groundwork to start from. And I feel like, whereas Amazon has to try to reconcile their lack of that groundwork with all of the everything else they've been doing during this pandemic, during these circumstances in general, that's been very much pushing back against the sort of push for social justice and social change in various other ways. And like, that's a more difficult thing for them to reconcile as a brand than what you're seeing with say a Netflix or a Hulu, which has a bit more space to kind of focus on that and not be the sort of corporate entity in as much as the same way, although they're all conglomerates and they're all corrupt in all the same ways of capitalism well obviously i mean i don't want to i don't want to say otherwise um i will say my thoughts on quibi are i'm actually interested in a lot of those shows but i refuse to watch it until i can get it on my tv like i'm not going to watch tv on my phone i'm glued to my phone already with everybody texting and all the social media updates my eyes are like getting ruined like as i speak and i just got music last year so i'm just like I'm not looking at my phone, damn it. Um, I will also say, strangely relevant show for the moment on a strange network, CBS All Access, The Good Fight, a yeah. Trump-era legal drama that actually is like excavating a lot of these issues that we're all dealing with right now in really interesting ways. Yeah, um, like my feeling about my, my, com my go-to comfort material right now resonates a lot with what AJ said in the first round, where I just feel like, I've had burnout on entertainment culture. I feel that I can't find anything that really moves me in the way that I need to be moved or whether that's just to tone down my emotions or actually respond to them in some way or, or move them in a different direction. Um, I've been pretty much doing really primitive media, like staring at the wall, um, staring at the window, I have been texting my best friends around the clock, and then I've been reading. I, I, I can't find any shows that I really, really want to watch. And I'm a 
TV, like I love TV. I'll watch everything. And so I'm reading Maya Gessen's Surviving Autocracy and it's helping me. It's, it's providing new perspective. It's so sharp and lucid and to the point, it's really helping me. And then, you know, I'm also reading The Source of Self-Regard, Toni Morrison. That too is just opening more space for me to think. And I feel really glad that we have other scholars in our field. And sometimes I just think, sit back and think, what would Jade Peterman say? Or, you know, what would Samantha Shepard think about this? What would Kara Keeling think about this? And um, I feel really glad that we have a field that has tried to hire women and men and non-binary people of color. And I hope that we will keep having conversations and bringing more and more people into the fold of these conversations and opening it up and thinking in ways we haven't thought about yet. I feel very, just to echo that, I feel like reading has been a sit a savior and I'm so glad I'm not teaching right now and I have time to read um, and read our colleagues books, which I'm like, I got stacks all around me just like going through them. I feel like in terms of novels, like Octavia Butler is newly popular. I'm reading N.K. Jameson right now. Um, and these are the kinds of things that I think actually Hollywood will be making in the future. Um, these kinds of more fantastical visions of the future or past um, that are raced differently than the current moment. Those are feeling really good. In terms of what's already out there, I will say and encourage people to flock to HBO's Random Acts of Flyness, which came out two years ago. Another kind of Afro-surrealist, Afro-futurist vision that I think would really get you into your feelings in a very deep way right now. Great. Thank you so much. Um, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you again to AJ Christian, Miles McNutt, Linda Morgan, and Lisa Parks for sharing your thoughts on these important issues. Oh, I also want to thank our sponsors, SCMS, ACA Media, the Department of Communication at Denison University, and the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame, as well as Chris Becker and Bill Kirkpatrick for all of their help with recording and editing, and Todd Thompson for providing the music and post-production for this podcast series. Our next and last episode is on pedagogy, how has the pandemic affected the ways in which we, we teach television today? We are excited to feature Bambi Haggins from the University of California at Irvine, Julia Himberg from Arizona State University, Derek Compare from Southern Methodist University, Julie Levin Russo from the Evergreen State College, and Jacinta Yanders from the College of DuPage. We are also very much interested in hearing your thoughts about the most important and interesting issues for each topic. So please continue to send in questions, comments, and suggestions through email at talkingtelevisioninapandemic at gmail.com and Twitter using the hashtag TalkTVInAPandemic.